Hi, everybody, and welcome back to yet another cracking installment of the Map Round Show. This is the Built in Texas series. Uh, and uh, if you've been following along, you know what this is all about. If you've just joined us, welcome. Uh, this is where I get the chance to talk to amazing founders and CEOs just really changing the way we do things. So with me on the line is none other than Josh, the man, the legend, Smith, <laughs> the uh, CEO and founder of Virgil. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. Uh, pleasure's all mine, mate. So um, why don't you give us a bit about uh, the your background is obviously this isn't your first rodeo. Uh, you sit on a number of boards and this kind of thing. So um, why don't you paint a picture of your background and then lead us into a bit around the origin story of Virgil? Yeah, no, for sure. So I've spent my entire career in and around wealth management, um, both as a practitioner. So originally making and helping make uh, investment recommendations for uh, some endowments, foundations and, and large families. Um, and then through the financial crisis, I'm, I'm not too old. I actually just turned 38, but through the financial crisis, kind of 08 to 2012, uh, you know, in my early mid twenties, um, kind of moved out of being an investment analyst as the world kind of fell apart and, uh, you know, had to help my firm figure out how to, uh, think about portfolio management when you're invested in a lot of different securities globally, when you're invested in hedge funds and private equity and venture capital, the people who make investments in companies like I've built. Um, it's just the data is everywhere. It's all over the place. And uh, I had to help the firm figure out how to how to make sense of it all um, mm -hmm. through a whole series of events. Uh, basically, you know, fell into technology and so doing helped them build, build an internal team and then kind of accidentally left. Um, you know, my my wife opened up an envelope and uh, as you probably know, with people who have spouses or significant others in the medical profession, uh, you don't have a lot of control over where you go and ended up in Birmingham, Alabama, love Birmingham, not my forever home and said, screw it. I'm 28 years old living in Birmingham. I've talked to three or four firms that had the same problem I had before and never in a million years would have thought that we would have had the clients that we had. You could basically look at a top 10 list of large endowments, foundations, top 10 list of the biggest pension funds, top 10 list of the wealthiest people in the world. And 50 to 60% of those became clients of my first company called Solovis. Um, and we uh, built that from 2013 to 2020. We exited to NASDAQ. Um, we didn't go public, but they they purchased us outright. Um, got about a year into that and, you know, great, great business, great company, but just decided two men in a coffee machine was uh, a lot more interesting to me than, uh, than necessarily working uh, for a big company. And, you know, through, through both the exit, the outcome, and, and just having a lot of successful rounds of financing, uh, doing, doing six personal rounds of financing with Solovis, uh, building relationships with a lot of private equity venture funds. You know, I've been fortunate enough to help work with other entrepreneurs and founders um, in, in building their businesses and hence the boards and advisory boards I sit on. And now getting to do it a, a second time. We, we grew a lot faster. We're already 50 plus people. Uh, first time it probably took me six years to get to 50 plus people. So we're, uh, we're blowing and going as they say, and at Virgil just raised a series a, but I'm sure we'll get into all that fun stuff, but that's uh, yeah. that's the background. Fantastic. So what did it, uh, what did that process of listing on the NASDAQ, NASDAQ rather teach you about investing or just entrepreneurship scale and growth? Was there anything that, uh, surprised you uh, from a lessons or insights perspective in the process of listing on the NASDAQ? 
Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, for to be clear, first off, we were purchased by NASDAQ, didn't list on NASDAQ. I wanted to make clear, not a publicly traded company, but got purchased by NASDAQ. Um, and, you know, through that whole process, Matt, I mean, you, you, you've you got to just acknowledge that there's going to be a million things that happen that you don't expect to happen. You think you've got all your I's dotted, your T's crossed. You don't. Uh, that's why I believe having advisors, you know, people talk about, I can do this myself, investment bankers, uh, legal counsel, they all have real, real uses. Um, and and candidly, you can't control the whole process. Um, I think the most important thing, whether you talk about acquisition, NASDAQ, what have you, is just making sure you've got somebody on the other side who is uh, a peer or going to ultimately be a colleague, whether that be a co-CEO or a chief revenue officer, someone that you can pick up the phone and just say, hey, with these lawyers and these accountants and this, that, or the other saying, that's just not fundamentally feasible. Um, and, you know, we've we've got to figure out if, if this is going to happen, we've got to figure this out. I probably had to make six or seven of those phone calls uh, along the way. And luckily, we, we were able to do so. So why does the NASDAQ purchase companies? Why do they purchase companies? Well, internally, uh, you know, the business itself. So while it is an exchange, if you actually look at some of the most active purchasers of businesses in financial services and data, um, because ultimately, what is a business doing when they're when they're listing? Right. They're 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 listing their business in order to have access to capital, in order to have access to public markets. That is ultimately the reason why you you exit. You know, in, in the world that we have been living in, it was a way to finally get liquidity for people who had been investing private capital. But but ultimately, it's so companies can come to market. Um, people have transparency to their data. It's very quick. It's very effective at companies at scale. And, and you can access trillions of dollars. But ultimately, those businesses are in the business of providing information. Uh, you know, if you look at NASDAQ, New York Stock Exchange, London Stock Exchange, Deutsche Bourse. Um, they've actually been some of the most prolific acquirers of financial services businesses and of financial data in the world. And it's because in the end, they are actually data companies. Their listing services are a component of what they do. But it for a lot of them is only 20 to 25 percent of their revenue, mm -hmm. uh, even though that's what they're known for. Um, so, you know, they are in the business of gaining data, creating data and working with data businesses. And in my case, they wanted access to, I work with the largest, what's called limited partners in the world. So the biggest endowments, the biggest foundations. If you go to the biggest private equity funds or hedge funds or the guys on CNBC, they're not getting their money from you and me. They're getting their money from Princeton, from Harvard, from Stanford, from these multi, multi 10, 20, 30, 40, $50 billion institutions. And in NASDAQ's case, if you can own the data flow from the top of the funnel, guess what that means? You start to be able to own the data flow from the private companies at the bottom and you become a conduit for information, means more companies want to list with you, means better access to the flow of information. That's that's ultimately why. Okay. Very interesting. Didn't even know they, I know a few people who've listed companies through the show, listed, <laughs> yep. Yep. not not being acquired. So it's good to, uh, good to meet someone that's actually done the other side of the coin. Yeah. <laughs> but let's talk about Virgil. Um, what's the problem that you guys solve from your perspective? Yeah. I mean, hopefully this, you know, listeners can, can relate to this, you know, choosing financial advisors is a very strange, especially in this digital world that we, we live in. It, it really is what I refer to as fork and knife. Uh, I don't know how many times I've been taken out, 
even in a pandemic, post-pandemic world, to play golf, to have a steak dinner, to uh, drink wine, you know, go to Las Vegas, um, you know, with people who ultimately want to run, you know, a portion of my capital. And, and you know, well, not everybody's as fortunate enough to have sold a business, whether it be you have a 401k, do I choose Fidelity? Do I choose E-Trade? Do I, I mean, do I have a personal financial advisor? It's literally a who do you know, recommend, recommend them to me. And, you know, going through the process myself, having 100% of my wealth tied up in uh, my business, then liquidating. I also met some co-founders who actually ran registered investment advisors. And they said, there's got to be a better way to give people information about what they're actually doing today without crying uh, and then make it more transparent what you're going to do for them in the future. Like, why should I have my money with you at, other than I just like you and trust you and okay, I'm going to start legging into a relationship with you. And so ultimately that's the problem we're solving. We're giving financial advisors the ability to very quickly ascertain through I've got money with UBS or I've got money with JP Morgan. Here's my JP Morgan statement. Here's what they're doing for me. You tell me if you like it or don't like it. And very quickly tell me what you're going to do differently and be able to do that in a matter of minutes, not days, weeks, hours, you know, months. I mean, it's it's literally a matter of minutes that you can have a really cohesive conversation with an advisor about what's going on in your world and what would be happening if, if you made a transition. Otherwise, it's fairly kind of behind the scenes and obfuscated. And it's really about a sales job. And and we feel very strongly that there should be more transparency and, you know, more uh more kind of understanding as to what's going on with your money. Um, and that's ultimately what we do. All right, fine. So listen, how big is this problem? I mean, I was at a client of mine, uh, they're a wealth management company. I talked to a lot of investors. I've got a sizable investor network. I'm curious to understand from an FA perspective, like how big is this problem? Like if you were to put a dollar value on transparency or, and all the other things that you guys enable for FAs, what is that number? How big would you put it? Yeah, I mean, in the United States, we believe it's a $500 million a year problem, right? We, we believe it's a problem where, you know, just the ability to convey what it is you're going to do. And, and one of the problems that we're solving, just to be clear, to get into the nuts and bolts of it is this issue of I want to transition financial advisors. It exists in every financial shop in the world where ultimately at some point I'm going to say to this financial advisor, you take me out to play a thousand rounds of golf. I like you. I'm interested in, in, in you potentially running some of my money. Historically, what would happen is I would start legging into that relationship with some of my money, give them 5% of my net worth, 10% of my net worth. And, you know, it's different for different people, but that's my story. Here, you know, with Virgil, what I can do is I can provide them what's going on in my world and not feel like they're prime because this is going into an objective application. We read all of the information off the statements, fees, taxes, how I'm positioned, um, you know, where, where all of my money is going in terms of ETFs, hedge funds, mutual funds, all of this stuff. And it would take the advisor for the amount of securities I have. It would probably take a team three weeks to go through all of my different statements and different financial advisors. I can make that process one minute. They can have a complete understanding. Well, I like this. I don't like this. Did you actually know because you have all these ETFs, you actually have a 20% position in Microsoft? Did you know that? Like you would be shocked People with $50 million have 10 to 15% positions in Apple and Microsoft and had no idea. And when they go back to their advisor and say, did you know that? The advisor goes, 
uh, no. And that's not okay. Like, and that's just one microcosm of a thousand things that we've seen that um, we feel it's just really important people are aware of. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's a big, it's a big issue. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can't literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. So um, how important is speed in this context, right? Because if you're going from like from day one to th- day 365 and you're essentially shortening, right, the engagement from initial engagement to actual sale or clients onboarded, um, how important is speed to an FA? It, it's, it's, it's a great question, right? Because ultimately speed is money, right? Our, our big kind of cachet and thing that we tell our, our financial advisors is a 50% acceleration in time in, in time in, in decision making timeframes, right? As well as uh, a 25% larger check where that decision is yes. Right. So in the case of financial advisors who at this point are almost always um, uh, uh, paid based on percentage of assets, right? It, you know, the ability to get someone to make a decision faster means more money in your pocket faster, right? Mm. Especially in down markets. The only way you're growing here is if you're adding new clients. Because um, markets have gone down, so you know speed becomes very important. It also means less cost, right? Because you're not having to go out to a thousand rounds of golf in order to convince somebody to, you know, have a conversation with me. It also gets you to know faster. And in any organization globally, a, a good sales leader is going to tell you, get to know just as fast as you get to yes. So you spend your time on more yeses. So there's a big return on investment component here. And there's a big cost savings component here, no matter which way you look at it. Now, there's a big difference, right? If I'm someone just looking at my mom's portfolio, she's a school teacher, you know, has a, 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 a you know, a, a clear 401k program, has 20 investment decisions. She's actually retired, so she can transition that now. Speed is actually very important to those advisors because it's a relatively small portfolio, right? So they want to be able to look across a thousand school teachers and say, wow, here's a hundred that, you know, we can really help and really spend time on, you know, because it's, it's a 10 page problem, but it's a thousand of them, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas if I get into someone worth a hundred million dollars, going from six months to two months is huge, even though it's not, you know, three days to, to two minutes, going from six months to two months is, is huge, both in terms of value add to that advisor, value add to that client. Um, and in terms of bringing that revenue in in faster. So it's it's somewhat relative to size of assets, but we are clearly making a huge difference uh, in terms of being able to provide value faster. 
Mm-hmm. So how does it actually work? Like if you're able to, you know, read this information or PDFs, for instance, walk us through the technology or the platform itself. How does it all come together? Yeah. Uh, so the platform, you know, we looked across and, and you know, I, I don't want to get into too many kind of software as a service SaaS terms, but there's horizontal SaaS solutions and then there's vertical SaaS solutions, right? And a horizontal SaaS solution is like um, Microsoft 365, right? Every organization across every single client, or I'm sorry, every single kind of industry in the world can use Microsoft Word uh, because it's a, it goes across, it's a horizontal solution. Um, then there are vertical SaaS solutions, right? There are CRMs like a Salesforce. Salesforce is a horizontal solution, but then there are versions of Salesforce for financial services, versions of Salesforce for car mechanics, versions of Salesforce for plumbers, right? Um, and there are CRMs that that do the same thing. And so, you know, from our perspective, we went out, we said, well, let's look at the horizontal solutions and see, is there something that can read information quickly? And what we realized is, while there is artificial intelligence, there is machine learning, we had to really take those concepts and apply them ourselves. So we built an entirely proprietary application that not only extracts the data, but then you've got to be able to match the tickers, match the QCIPs, match the identifying information between multiple tables. Then you have to validate it, right? And so all of that is completely proprietary. A real electronic PDF, whether it's generated from Word or another computer program, actually has the data inside of the PDF layers. Um, and depending on how it's generated, there's a lot of intellectual property that goes into figuring that out. Um, that's what we built and designed. So we've, we've spent a lot, you know, millions of dollars on building out this extractor. Then you've got to normalize it and standardize the data in order for it to match and run the analytics on top of it. So it's a, it's not a new novel crypto, you know, blockchain style, you know, situation here, but we are definitely using the most modern versions of AI and machine learning around extracting data and then applying our own secret sauce to it. Mm-hmm. So what... <laughs> How much of an enabler has computer vision, AI, and ML been for you guys in terms of like getting market traction, attracting the client, the kind of you know client portfolio that you guys have? I mean, if you've got the top ten, as you mentioned up front, like wealthiest people in America, what have you? So I'm curious about this because the reason why I'm asking is because um, you know I, I know founders who've used com- you know the same technology set and they're like don't do it dude <laughs> like stay away and then I've got other guys who are like huge proponents of it so I'd love to get your view. Well, first off, congratulations! You're the first podcast, the first I've ever spoken to from an interview perspective who's ever used the word or phrase computer vision. So congratulations on even understanding what that is. That is exactly what we're doing, right? This is this is computer vision. It's a subset of computer vision. Um, and I'll just be clear, right? I mean, AI, machine learning, like you're, you're, you'll get me a little bit on the soapbox here. It's to some extent like politics, like they're not penicillin, right? They're not penicillin in the sense that, oh, now that AI and machine learning exists that, you know, I'm going to be able to cure all the bacterial infections in the world. Like that's, that is not what it is. Instead, they're like a scalp. And whether you're using AI, machine learning, computer vision, you know, different kinds of analytics processes, big data, small data, you know, supercomputers, whatever. These are all buzzwords that you have to have a business application and you have to still be able to standard and normalize data, right? When Tableau came out or or Microsoft Power BI, you know, everybody was like, oh my God, we're going to be able to visualize our data in completely normal ways. Well, guess what? If your data is garbage, I don't care what you put on top of it. It's still garbage, garbage in, garbage out, right? So 
we've been able, because of our subject matter expertise, because this is a vertical SaaS solution and in industry that I've been in my entire life, my co-founders have been in their entire lives, we know the problems and we know the specific, like I could extract all the data in the world. If I can't identify that that's Apple stock, it's useless, right? So being able to conform computer vision and conform AI and ML and natural language processing to the knowledge that we have and the databases that we have and the analytics that we have and standardizing and normalizing that process is why we built a business and it's gonna be very difficult for anybody to catch us. That requires a lot of intellectual property just about the industry. To take an engineer and say, you're the best, you could take the best computer vision engineer in the world right now and say, go tackle this problem. It'd probably take them 20 years to get remotely where we are because we've got so much IP around what this problem is. And so that's the type of founders that I really help out. Those are the businesses that I personally build are businesses that have, you know, I'm not changing the world, building a horizontal SaaS solution that can extract data. I'm changing a specific subset of the world that has a really defined problem that I can point to and say, that exists in every financial advisor in the world. And while that might not be a trillion dollar opportunity, it's a multi-billion dollar opportunity. And there are so many opportunities like that across businesses. I just love solving those problems. So Josh, how much of, is, is this also true? So I'm going to relay a situation or scenario to you. So I'm a FA, let's say. I've got a hundred clients, right? I don't have the time to really provide that high touch service to all 100. So I will look at my top 10 uh, on my book and I will go, yo, like I'm going to provide like 80% of my time will go there because they're 80% of my revenue. So what happens is, as you know, like, you know, the other 90% or the other 80, you're kind of like, you know, I'm not really getting there. Is your system or is your technology enabling a full service across a, a broader set of clients? It's it, so uh, you bring up, if you actually go to our website, there's this, we talk about client acquisition all the time, right? And what immediately happened was our very first clients said to us, great, we showed this to our prospects. They're now clients and the clients have said they'd never seen it before. And so they said, we have to keep showing them this in order to show you know all this transparency. So you bring up what we call the retention and ongoing monitoring component. And you hit the nail on the head, right? Um, bi different business models are set up in different ways in the financial advisor space. So I'm not going to get into that. I'm, I'm simply going to answer the question this way. Virgil, through our reporting, both internally, so the, the B2B component to financial advisors, but then the B2B2C component to their clients, uh, so the clients of our clients, um, there is a compliance component to this. There is a component that allows people to see, wow, compared to this benchmark or compared to this model, they've started to drift or something has happened. And so, yes, we 100% see and we 100% expect, look, we've only been in markets like with our products since February this year. We're about a year and 11 months old now. Um, so we're continuing to see these things unfold. But, you know, candidly, the ability for advisors to look across and do comparisons on themselves, we actually have this concept called the Virgil score. And you can very quickly start to see across performance, risk, diversification, taxes, and fees. You can very quickly start to see if you're moving out of bounds. And that is a huge component about that retention and will allow you to service more, more clients, we believe, effectively. Exactly. And uh, that's, that's really a huge ROI, isn't it? Like being able to 
provide a full service consistently across your full book is like a, a real win. Um, just to maybe change gears for a moment, um, you guys have just closed your Series A funding round. You've raised $15 million. I always have this as like an ongoing, you know, <laughs> conversation with founders because like the market, the macroeconomics are shit right now. Like, well, they're not bad, actually. They're kind of like in a holding pattern. Um, and you've kind of done a really great job at closing this round. Um, what's your, I mean, how have you found it harder than, you know, than you typically want in terms of like your expectation on, in terms of raising that amount of money in the market the way that it is? Has it been harder were VCs like harder to access? Are they more picky? What are you seeing? Yeah, great question. Um, so I kind of have a bit of a counterbalance in that I'm a second time founder plus plus board member, right? So that you do it successfully once, like suddenly it just becomes easier, especially to have a conversation and people to trust you. It kind of checks that box, right? Especially if you bring management along with you. So that is the counterbalance. What I will definitely say is... It was equally hard um, as last time, the first time around, because 80% of the firms when I started the raise was in March, April, right? Russia had just invaded. Volatility had just started to really, you know, hit the markets. I mean, and uh, private equity, venture capital, growth equity just literally went pencils down. So 80% of the firms I still talk to, I just got back from Money 2020, one of the largest fintech conferences in Las Vegas. I mean, there are still firms who've made zero investments this year. And these are firms who made 50 last year, right? So um, it's definitely harder from the supply, even though there's everybody talks about the amount of dry powder, and there is, there's, there's just tremendous amounts of money in private investments and more coming every day. People aren't deploying it. And a lot of that is because people are scared. They know they overextended probably last year. They've been very focused on their current portfolio. Like, how can we continue to support our current portfolio? So you're going to see a lot of zombie startups. If you, I mean, we already have started to see it fail, not be able to raise capital if you don't have good product market fit. The other thing that I saw and continue to see and, and would not expect this to change is that firms kind of fell back into their proverbial, I'm a seed, I'm a pre-revenue, I'm a, I'm an early revenue seed stage, I'm a series A, B, C investor. You had all sorts of stuff going on, right? You had hedge funds investing in seed deals. You had seed investors in C deals. You had D investors in, in series A deals. And that just totally stopped. So suddenly you, you've got defined mandates in a lot of these firms where they've made their bread and butter. And so it went from, oh, I can raise capital from anybody I want to anywhere at any time to at now that subset is shrunk plus 80% of that subset's decided I'm not making any investments this year. So yes, it's a lot harder. That said, have we seen massive valuation compression? We've seen a good bit, but it hasn't been so insane that someone like me was unwilling to raise capital, right? I'm still, I raised my first round of capital uh, institutional capital, January of 2016 in my last business. In this business, this was my first institutional capital. And I raised it at at lower revenue, okay? Significantly lower revenue. I still raised it at seven times what I raised it the first time. 
So, you know, the markets have still gotten a lot better and there's a lot more capital, but um, it's a lot more selective and, and a lot more choosy right now, for sure. Right. So how did you decide to raise that amount? Like, why wasn't it, you know, for argument's sake, 10 million? Like, how do you decide how much to raise? So, again, I, I'm a beat my own drum, right? You know, I'm a Henry David Thoreau, I think was the person who said that. You know, I, I do what I want. My last business, all my rounds of capital were $8 million or less. I never raised a big $30 million, but I did five of them. I basically did around a year for five straight years until I exited. Um, that was somewhat unusual. You know, you see these 15 Series A's, 30 million Series B's, but like I knew what I wanted my outcome to be. My investors were along the right. I, I kind of laid that roadmap out um, right in front of me. And in this go round, having done it before, getting the good valuation I mentioned, um, I really believed, look, I, I want at least two years worth of capital. Right. And while I had term sheets on the table, similar valuations, some even decently higher than what I ultimately raised at, you know, they were like, well, we want to give you five or six and see if it works. And we want to give you, and I was like, you know what? I, I just don't know what's going to happen with the market. I don't know what's going to happen with this. And, and I just made really clear to my team and to my co-founders, I said, we're going to take more dilution than we otherwise wanted to because I need the comfortability that I don't have to be in the market at the end of this year. And it's just going to let me make some mistakes that, you know, two years ago, if I'd raised, I'd have said, I can raise here and triple my valuation and go raise again and not have to raise as much and just try and play that game. A lot of those companies are doing down rounds right now, significant down rounds. So I, I just felt really strongly get enough capital to where I can be methodical, be intentional, make some mistakes and uh, go at it. I was very surprised we were six million oversubscribed as well. Um, I never thought I was going to do a $15 million round. I, I did think I was going to do a 10 to 12. We had a lot of capital coming at us. So if you look on the, the announcement, we had a lot of strategics who are big names in the RAA space. Um, and we thought getting them on board um, would do a lot for us as well. So we were, we, we were willing to make more room. So, you know, did we maximize cap table? Probably not. Did we maximize an outcome? Probably so. Um, Josh, how important is story in this process? You know, like my last company, uh, um, we had doubled revenues every year. Um, and then, and, and, and I, it's funny because I actually went to my mentor. He, was like, he owns like hundreds of businesses. And, and I said to him, look, I'm going to the States. What do you think I should do? And he's like, sell it. And I'm like, and I'm like no, dude, I'm not selling it. Like I'm doubling revenues every year. And he's like, Matt, let me, let me, let me tell you honestly here, dude. He's like, I know X with like more money than you, smarter than you, uh, went to the US, you know, like, and had their asses handed to them. What makes you special? And I'm like, and I was drinking my Kool-Aid at that point, you know. Um, and, uh, and in hindsight, it was, the, it was a very good advice, which I should have <laughs> listened to. Because if I had started the, the, you know, the exit process, I would have been a lot wealthier than I am now because what actually happened was I hung on to it and then this thing called COVID happened and then the revenues went the other way. And to sell a company, anything, any assets where the revenues aren't keep going north, <laughs> uh, like it's almost impossible. Um, and 
that's the, it's the story, isn't it? It's, that's what yeah. I'm trying to get across. It's like, listen, like, are you doubling revenues every year? I know like the EBITDA and all that stuff is important and the terms are also important, but the, sto- the overall story, you know, if I've found at least in my own personal experience, it's like there's a window to do this, you know, because uh, like you may not have got 15 million, you know what I'm saying? Like I know you were oversubscribed and what happened happened, but for a lot of other companies, if, the, if you mess up the timing Right, the timing of markets can affect the story. The story gets impacted. It's not as shiny as it was. Then you don't. You're not worth as much. You know what I mean. And then investors will always try and take a bigger piece of you because of that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, look, it's look. I I I am a storyteller, right? Not like my fib, but like I I believe positioning, go to market positioning. The story is everything. And, and, you know, I tell everybody that I, I don't care how great an idea is. I'm backing a management team and I'm backing a management team who convinced me in good times and bad that, you know, yes, I have to believe there's an addressable market. Yes, I have to believe revenues can continue to go up, right? Yes, I have to believe that there's some sort of moat here. But, you know, everything in my view, just to your question, is, is, is the story, you know, if I didn't hit my numbers or if I triple my numbers, you know, is my expectation I'm going to do that again next year? Did something materially happen or did I just miss it, whether to the positive or to the negative? And how did that play out? You know, did, you know, you, you see businesses all the time that, you know, are, are 20 million in revenue, 30 million in revenue. But they just don't tell a good story and they don't get the multiples. In my case, you know, I was able to get a, you know, 16, 17x multiple on revenue in my first business because I was able to really convey two things. One, market penetration and retention. I lost one client in eight years. And, you know, by the way, these big endowments and foundations have been a lot longer than you and I have been around. And they're going to be here a lot longer than we're gone. And okay, so they're perpetual. And I could constantly just show that story in good times and bad times and, you know, be able to make very clear. The other thing, too, is just communication. Mm-hmm. It's it's not going out to market and saying, well, market multiples are X. You start the conversations with private equity, VC, growth equity, potential strategics years in advance. And sometimes people say, why are you talking? Because I'm not talking to them to raise money. I'm talking to them because... They then go and they meet someone and they go, hey, I heard about this cool business. What do you think, financial advisor, buddy? And they go, holy shit, I'm actually about to become a client of that or this, that or the other. Right. Like, excuse my French. But, you know, it's those types of things with investors and strategics that really, really maximize value. I am not a believer in go hire a banker. I'm selling my business. This is the first time you've met me. Now I'm going to expect the highest potential multiple. I've just really never seen that work. So it's about relationship building. It's about people seeing the story unfold, them seeing you and the team and the product continue to grow and evaluate. And I feel very strongly about that. So um, what have you learned? Is, it, is there something that you feel having been through this process more than once that you feel other startup founders in the process of raising, let's just say someone raising for the first time, typically overlooks in terms of the terms of a deal like this? Because you get different types of debt, you know. Yeah. Someone eats first. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, I guess clarify the question, Matt. Are you asking about what they overlook from like a capital raising perspective? Yeah. Yeah. And and, and 
and terms, like the way that these things are sometimes structured? Well, yeah, I, I tell everyone valuation is an equal one quarter. I might somewhat mistake my math here, but an equal it's equal weight to several other things, right? Yeah. And those other things are governance um, with control associated with that. Um, it's the type of security. Um, it's the amount of money and the expectation around that amount of money. Um, it's, uh, it, it's really those aspects, valuation, security, governance, uh, and expectation in terms of how this money is going to deploy. I, I'm not going to name names, but there was a company raised a hundred million dollars off of $1 million in revenue, but they got a billion plus dollar valuation. Founders are flying around in private jets. Why? Because the backers expected them to spend the money. And I have no idea how to run a business that way. I have no idea how to even contemplate running a business that way. And so it has to align with how you think you can run a business because there is nothing that I've seen replace founders and management faster than, oh, we raised this and we maximized that and let me pat myself on the shoulder. And it's like, you have no idea what you're doing. And given that amount of money, you're out the door, right? So you've got to be intentional, right? You've got to be intentional about governance, valuation, security, because you will get behind the eight ball in a hurry. Did I sell for a billion dollars in my last business? No. Did I maximize valuation at every round? No. But did I have great working relationships around the table? And did I own a lot of that business when I sold for a lot of money? Yes, I did. And it's because we maximized that whole consortium of things along the way. And when we had issues, we knew what those potential issues could be. So I, I think founders have to be a lot more focused on everything, not just valuation. Agree. And just on the valuation uh, point, um, I know you touched on it up front, but you were saying like, you know, you haven't seen valuations take too much of a hit, you know, in typically on, on average. Um, and one of the stats uh, I read recently from PitchBook, I think it was like 34% of venture capital year and year, well, the, the amount of venture capital going into startups year and year has come down by 34%. If a founder is looking to raise money, and, and you kind of touched on this, but I just want to maybe double click on this to make sure this is clear, valuation or terms, which is more important? I mean, look, I, I can't look at, I, I look at them completely in composite, right? I mean, I, I, there are investors who are going to say, I will only invest 10 million. There are investors who will say, I will only invest 2 million. There are investors who will say, I will only invest 50 million. And what each one of them is doing is trying to basically take a certain percentage of your business, right? So do I raise two at 10? Do I raise 10 at 50? Do I raise, you know, basically to get to these same same outcomes and, and what are the terms associated with that? And specifically, what are the milestones that I'm going to be able to hit, right? If I raise two at 10 and someone comes along and says, I'll buy your business for 50 or 30, and I own 100% of that business going into that two or 10, that outcome is possible. If I raise 50 at 250, I just took anything below 500 off the table, right? And you have to know that once you start setting terms and securities and governance and valuation, 
you are subscribing to a minimal outcome or to some form of an outcome that, you know, I've seen founders sell for $500 million that made less than founders who sold for $50 million, right? And everybody talks about, do you want to own a smaller piece of a much bigger pie? Well, sure. But how you get there is important, right? And just knowing that about the market, knowing that about how investors invest is really important. It's, you know, look, a lot of people want to say I raised $50 million. I just patted myself on the back. I'm very proud of the fact that I had in my last business, I raised 24 million cumulatively. And I'm very proud of the fact I never had to raise anything longer, bigger than an $8 million round and had a phenomenal outcome. So, you know, look, it's not about the, if you're doing it for the headlines, have a feeling you're not going to be doing it very long. So I, I look at terms, I look at valuation. It's got to be a story that you can tell yourself, tell your board, tell your investors. It's got to be something you believe in. And then with that, especially if you raise large capital, you have got to expect you're going to need to bring in professional management. And that doesn't mean I never replace myself as CEO. I have no expectation I'm going to replace myself as CEO. Did that mean I needed a very professional COO? Did that mean I needed a very professional head of sales? Did that mean I, I had to quit micromanaging everything? Uh, yes. And you're going to have to do that, period. Yeah, it's interesting. Another stat I saw recently, like 50%, roughly, one in two, uh, founders who raise VC money are replaced within 36 months. Because they don't like they, they don't have that skill set, right? Like they don't know what to do with fifty million. You know what I mean? Like they have an idea, but like I don't know, somewhere along the line, if things change, markets move, and suddenly, oh shit! Like I'm not getting that that valuation anymore for my investors or my returns. Um, you know, you can be replaced. Yeah, I mean, and that's another just figment of people's imagination. You take outside money, you don't control the business anymore. Mm. Like period. That's what I mean, scares. That's what scares me personally. Like I've, I've never wanted to. I've always bootstrapped it. You know, in hindsight, maybe if I'd raised money for my previous company, like things would have, you know, been different or what have you. Maybe I could have exited because we would have been. I don't know. You have some, you know, working capital to do stuff with, um, and put more, you know, fuel in the engine, so to speak. But that always made me nervous. You know what I mean? Like being, uh, like even if you list a company, you're essentially selling it. You know what I mean? Like you're no longer in control. Um, and to your point, if you take on a, a, an investor's money, it's like, oh, snap. Like now I'm accountable to someone else, right? Like, it, and yeah. it, cha it changes. It's no longer fun. Like uh, for, for me, for me, it's no longer, it, it could no longer be fun because, you know what I mean? Like it just changes the context so much. Well, look, it's akin to, and I tell people it's akin to taking on a spouse. It's akin to taking on, you know, a, a, a really significant business partner with equal with equal rights. Like, yes, there are governance components, right? You, you get have, have somebody who has a bad day. And I've rarely seen just somebody up. I, I, I haven't seen, like, these horrific, like, investors or outcomes. It's always communication. And it's just like any relationship, right? And people need to be mature enough to say, Am I good at those relationships? Am, am I or am I doing this because I want to have total and complete control? And if somebody says something to me and I disagree, that's how you get yourself in trouble really fast. Right. Like it's OK to be hard driving. It's OK to have an opinion. It's OK to that. I mean, that's what entrepreneurs are to a large extent. But you can't do it in such a way that you create a fiduciary problem for them. 
You can't do it in such a way that you just blatantly aren't willing to listen. And that doesn't mean, like, I have never really actually seen an investor who comes in and says, no, this is exactly how you have to do it. I've never seen that. However, when I've seen the same investor say the same thing for nine straight board meetings and the CEO's response is still, go do this with yourself, that's when you start ending up in those scenarios, right? So mm-hmm. it's all communication. It's the, it's, it's, when you take outside money, you just have to tell yourself, what would I do in order to keep this job? Even though I'm the ultimate sayer and they have backed me because they have backed you as the entrepreneur. They have backed you. It's just like getting married. You didn't get married to get divorced like a, a year later. Like that's not fun. They've got to go explain it to people. Like they've got to, they get their own, like the partner who invested that's a big black mark on their back. Like, it's not fun for them to have to do this. So you just got to recognize that there's a lot going on here, but you do control it. But it's still a relationship. And like any relationship, it can go bad. And, and ultimately, the outcome has to be we've got to separate this. And the reason why I say is even if you own total control of the business, right? The first people any new investor is going to call are the current investors on the cap table. And say, what do you think about this guy? It's a zero. You're not raising money. So that's why I say, even if you control the business, you don't control the business because that phone call happens mm. almost every time. So you just, you just, you got to be real. It's, it's an emotional maturity aspect. Of it. If you want to mm. control it, you want to build a business yourself, bootstrap it, power to you. I know people in my family like that. Um, they couldn't be told to do anything they didn't want to do. Thankfully, they've never raised outside money because it would be bad. And I've seen a lot of founders who've never should have raised outside money mm-hmm. um, because they just can't accept anybody else's opinion but their own. And that's fine. I'm not saying that's wrong. Mm-hmm. But just know when you take outside money, that's not all that matters anymore. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for that. Um, Josh, when do you start thinking about an exit here? Like, you know what I mean? Because uh, there's two schools of thought here. One is... If you're thinking about an exit too early, you miss the fun, the fundamentals, right? Like you you miss doing what you should be doing um, because you focus on the wrong thing. The other school of thoughts, which is where I'm kind of camped out, <laughs> which is build it like you would, like you could sell it, so that should you need to, you can. Um, you know, you know what I mean. Like you're doing, you're putting everything in place so that let's just say you do want to raise around, even like you've you've done the right things. You you've, the story is where it's at. Um, you know, like even just having a board or a, a middle management team. Like if someone wants to buy you, like it's not going to die because Matt Brown's decided to move to America. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. Look, I, I I wouldn't have said it any other way. With the one caveat of I I think people need to understand who their acquirers are. Right. And they need to be honest about that. Like, could a bank buy me? Could a, is, is this a publicly traded company? Is this a company that I can get big enough to be publicly traded? Uh, is a private equity buyer logical? Is this a company that I think with X amount of money I can make profitable? Is this so we can sell fun? Is it a company that I think is going to take 200 plus million dollars to get to profitability? Like, I think you've got to be real honest up front about where you are and what your logical outcomes can be. Because like I said, you raised 50 million. Well, you better be signing up for a 300 plus million dollar business, like period, full stop. Right. So 
you better be confident you can get there or else you better be confident that uh, someone else can or you're going to have a problem. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I think you just you, you got to start a little bit with the end in mind and not say I'm selling tomorrow, but say, if I do my business plan right, who would buy this and why? What have they historically done in terms of multiples, um, in terms of things like that? Because, look, the vast majority of companies certainly don't list. You know, they stay private and get acquired. Um, What does that look like? And and then that helps inform how you raise capital as well. So that when you get to, you know, year three or four, look, if you're starting a business to sell it tomorrow, I, I don't have any expertise in that. Like, that's not... That's not what I think about when building a business. I think you get good product market fit, show acceleration. I do believe in constantly being in market, having conversations, learning from financial sponsors. That doesn't mean go have three-hour conversations on-site about selling your business and raising capital. What it means is, what are you seeing in the market? How do you look at businesses like us? Are you seeing any logical requires? Are you seeing any competition? Like Talking to financial sponsors who this is their job all day, every day, is it hugely informative to a CEO and to a business builder? You've got to be able to focus on the business. But that's not my skill set, right? Like my skill set is focusing on the business, but I bring in people who run the day-to-day every 30 seconds. And then I, at the end of the day, an hour, two hours a day, focus on what's going on, catch up with my management team, have some overarching conversations. So you need to know who you are, where you fit in the business, build the cogs, be having conversations, and begin a little bit with the end in mind. Who could the acquirer be? And that helps inform the stages that you should be at when, if in year two or three, you want to start looking at a market check, you know the people to call and say, what do you think about this? Mm-hmm. And also, it's not, I did this in my first business, it's not sell or not, right? Like I took, in two rounds of financing, I took a couple percentage points off the table and that was meaningful. I could buy cat my house for cash. I could buy a nice car. I finally could start putting money away and live a di- different life, like actually buy decent jeans. Like, you know, you don't have to sell the whole thing. So, you know, it, it, there are nothing is black or white. Like there are ways in between to, to get to different outcomes. Yeah. It's mainly the jeans. <laughs> and I, I will, I will tell you, I mean, this is too much information, but I had the same underwear from college until, you know, about a year before I sold my business. So, you know, that's, that's too much information, but that's what it means to have a hundred percent of your worth tied up in the business. So, Do you know, uh, <laughs> on the men's underwear story, I have a funny story for you and everybody else. So I was, I was chatting to uh, the, the founders of Haystacks, dot uh, ai they're out in um in new york and they have a predictive intelligence engine for real estate so they can they're able to nom you know aggregate different data sources you'll get all this stuff <laughs> yep. uh, but they're able to you know use these unstructured data sources and you know blah 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 and one of them is uh men's underwear purchases so what they've done is and they've taken like like an index of like how you know how many or the the frequency of purchases for men's underwear, and and the rub is when uh, men's underwear sales stop, it's a indicator for the the you know declining of house prices or real estate prices. Weird, right? Men's underwear. People underestimate the power of men's underwear, dude. <laughs> well, no, I mean, look, it's it's it, it, just on that anecdote. I mean, men's underwear, but you know, this is the the alternative data construct hedge funds are prolific purchasers of satellite imagery, right? Is is the Walmart parking lot 
more or less empty than it was three months ago, right? So they start to know what's going on with sales before the public companies release. And so this is part of the hedge funds like cache is all these alternative data sources are truckloads more or less. And you can get this data or port loads more or less or this, that, or the other, like this is the alternative data world is very interesting and a great opportunity for a lot of people who are good at math. And I am good at math, but I'm unfortunately not nearly that good at math. So um, good, good on them, but that's, that's a great anecdote. Josh, uh, two questions and then we'll wrap up. Um, so have a bit of fun with you at this point. So I'm going to give you the keys to the Matt Brown Show time machine. Uh, and I know you're a relatively young company, but if you could go back to yourself on day one and give yourself advice about building Virgil, what would that piece of advice be? Having done it once and apparently completely forgotten that this is this hard, like it's hard and it's, you know, you, you got to prepare your family. You got to understand your own time. You got to understand what balance is. You got to protect your mental health. Um, you know, it's, it's just, it's hard and it's a journey and you just really do have to enjoy the journey. You got to set goals, but you can't just, you know, set the goal. I'm going to sell in five years because it, it gets, it just gets lost. And as part of that journey, you got to put people around you that you like working with every single day. And if you don't, and you're the boss, cut bait and run, because it's just, it makes it miserable. I mean, this is, it's, it's not easy to build any business. Um, it's certainly not easy to maintain all the relationships that are necessary in doing so. And just, just be prepared for that. It's a journey and you got to be a journey and enjoy that as part of, you know, the other aspects of your life. Yeah, that's a really great point. Uh, last question, Josh, why do you do what you do? Like what gets you out of bed in the morning? Yeah, I mean, it's a combination of there's an ethos component to, to literally what we're doing, having lived, you know, the problem myself. It's it's believing in transparency. It's believing in, you know, people deserve to, to understand what's going on in their current world. Um, you know, fi financial services, even though they have a fiduciary responsibility, they're still selling. It's very hard to trip that fiduciary wire, right? And um you need to be able to protect yourself and you need to do what's in yours and your family's best interest. Um, and you need to be the guide of that. So I feel really strongly that gets me up in the morning. Uh, and then the other thing that gets me up is, is just, it's the aspect of building a business at this stage, 38, I've done it once been successful. Other companies I've invested in are successful. It's really about mentoring and helping others. And I nothing gives me greater pleasure, actually, than seeing my management team from my prior business now running a six times larger business, moving on and making millions of dollars a year in, in other, you know, uh, businesses. That is a huge sense of pride for me, whether I do another thing or I'm successful at all the rest of my life, knowing that when kids entered my world as theater majors and waiters, are now running entire divisions, making, you know, mid six figures a, a year. That's, that's the best part of it. And I love that. Amazing. Josh Smith. Thanks for being on the show, bud. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Cheers guys. Bye now.
Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.